Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student, four medic three medical students with me here today. Uh, a couple of new students. How about if you guys do some introductions for us? I'm Jonathan Hansen. I'm a third year at Rocky Vista Medical School. Hi, I'm Julia Sire, and I'm also a third year at Rocky Vista. Now, every once in a while, you guys know that I ask questions that are totally unexpected. <laughs> you guys are nearing the end of your first year in, in clinical rotations, right? How does it feel to be almost done with your third year? Kind of feels surreal. I'm like a little excited to start seeing myself kind of in the setting that I'll be in the future more than just like trying out stuff, more like planning the future. It's a big change. Yeah, it, it's a little nerve wracking as well, especially for me not knowing exactly what I want to do yet. It's uh, a fun ride though. I think the uh, philosophers, the clash, had something to say about that, something along the lines of, this indecision's killing me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Connor, uh, good to have you back. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, good to be back. So I'm Connor Weston. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista. Uh, I was here about a year ago, rotating, and just turned in my list for ranking for residency. I'm planning to go into family med and seemed like coming back for a little bit more psych was not a bad idea. And we're very, very glad to have you back and I think you've also helped us on a couple of podcasts now by this point. Uh, quick question for you. You had some uh, questions about how you would choose to match and I think you wrote down some of the goals that you had, some of the things you hope to attain from that match. Just out of curiosity, uh, how closely do you think you followed the goals that you had in matching? Uh, I think that overall my list goes with what I set out to find. Most important thing was the people. Uh, we talked about that a little bit the other day and uh, you really did help in kind of showing me what I wanted to uh, look into to make sure I'm picking the right residency program for me. Uh, we hope you tell us. We hope it works out the way you lined them up. We're not going to put that on tape just in case you ever listen to this again uh, to be reminded that you might not have got your number one choice. How does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> All right, so uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to choose the topic that you chose, Connor. This is a fascinating topic to me and I think a difficult topic. Yeah, so kind of what got me most interested is I always found the personality disorders and all the clusters and everything along those lines very interesting. And antisocial personality disorder in particular, I think, is something that often isn't really talked about. And so it was something I really wanted to dive more into, just reading about how those kinds of people react and react. Uh, really was fascinating to me, so I wanted to delve a little deeper. So we, I think we have a, a case scenario. This is not directly lifted from another source, but I think it's a good example of the kinds of case scenarios that you might run into that test questions about patients and people that you will see with antisocial personality disorder. Julie, I think you've got that. Is that right? Yeah, so just like general case concepts, basically. Yes. Uh -huh. So some of the things I saw were like, younger than 18 have signs of conduct disorder but also maybe like not exactly in the realm of antisocial um quite yet and the question was why don't they have antisocial and i thought it was because they were doing the acts like stealing and these things for um 
their drug habit, but it was actually the answer was their age. So that was more important than the reason behind their actions. So I think this is one of the test questions that comes up quite often. It's not always knowing what the criteria are for a condition, but it's knowing the timelines for a condition. And in this case, the difference between two conditions, uh, there is a, a timeline that has to be crossed. In one case, somebody that has conduct disorder has to be a certain age, and there are certain criteria for that, and then somebody that has uh, antisocial personality disorder has to also have a certain age and have had conduct disorder in the past. Does that sound right? Yeah. All right, and what is the age of onset for antisocial personality disorder? So you have to be at least 18 okay. to have it be considered onset for antisocial personality disorder. And I think that's what you're talking about is you got tripped up on the age on that one um, yeah. as you're starting to do your practice questions. Very good. Uh, Connor, give me a thumbnail sketch of the antisocial personality disorder criteria. Uh, so these are the types of people that do not kind of regulate to social norms. They're going to be people that are irritable, angry. They don't seem to really have emotion or empathy towards others. Uh, they'll be reckless a lot of the time when they're uh, out in the social environment. They'll sometimes be deceitful. So that's the type of person that you're going to see when uh, looking at uh, either in the environment or on a test question. I saw also things along the lines of repeated physical aggression and fights, disregards the rights of others, and I think that speaks to the empathy thing. I think yeah. you're summarizing empathy as, as kind of a bigger basket, a better way of thinking about some of the deficits, and uh, repeatedly does things that are grounds for arrest. Now that... This diagnosis is a little bit different than the other personality disorders, and let me see if I can understand some of the criticisms in one of the articles that you sent me. Mm -hmm. The first is that this personality disorder focuses more on behavior than on personality traits. So if you're looking at a question where maybe it's difficult to sort out the difference between this and other personality disorders, you'll see behaviors more with this, and I think even your example speaks to that a little bit rather than the focus on the personality. Now, it still does have to be that long-standing pattern. Now, the other thing that's kind of interesting, and I think you and I had an interesting couple of conversations about this, the requirement for childhood uh, antecedents or childhood diagnosis or having met criteria as a child. So tell me briefly about conduct disorder. Yeah, so conduct disorder and when you're thinking conduct disorder, the one that you'll also always think of is oppositional defiance disorder. So you kind of first have to distinguish between those. Conduct disorder, you're going to be more of the child who actually acts out and either hurts people or uh, does something more malicious versus oppositional defiance disorder. It's more of a child who's just vindictive but doesn't act out in that more aggressive way. I think, uh, let's see, Jonathan, you had a little more to add to that. I want to hear your take on that distinction as well, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so the oppositional defiant disorder is usually focused on an individual of authority, where the conduct disorder is more just um, violating social norms in itself. The oppositional defiant disorder is also, um, you have to have it for greater than six months, where the conduct disorder is greater than a year. 
I think the other thing that's important to think about conduct disorder is I often think of a handful of, con of events that are descriptive of that. Uh, vandalism, torturing animals, um, truancy, fights, those kinds of things. Again, social norms, right, where, where it's not appropriate to be doing those things. So, so there's the conduct disorder antecedent. You have to have had conduct disorder to be able to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. There's a little bit of discussion about this. Talk to me about the discussion and what you saw in the literature, Connor. Yeah, so we found an article talking about comparing people who are adults now that had conduct disorder when they were younger or they didn't. And it was very interesting because this article kind of discussed how they were very similar and there wasn't really a difference. So they were talking about maybe conduct disorder shouldn't be as prevalent in the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. And one really interesting part of it is they actually found uh, some of the patients who just had it diagnosed as an, uh, as an adult actually were a little bit more aggressive than the ones that had the conduct disorder diagnosed when they were younger. I, I think I saw something very similar. So uh, this all starts from an article in 1978 by uh, Robbins, apparently. And one of the things that was really challenging for me for this podcast, I, I've never had a podcast that had so many articles that were firewalled or paper protected, right? So even your library at Rocky Vista, the, the, the Google repository, free access articles, this was a very limited uh, access topic, and I assume it's because the articles are in specialty journals that are less commonly included in bundles for libraries. Uh, so right off the bat, I looked for the Robbins article that it was described as being one of the formative articles in the diagnosis. And, and what they described was this pathway, right? And you guys alluded to this before. Um, Jonathan, you and Connor talked about uh, the difference between oppositional defiant disorder, the conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder. And at least Robbins, the way that I read um, the Perdicuri article, which is the article you're referring to, said that, made the case that these risk factors were probably even antecedent factors, that these conditions developed into each other, not, not, con not consistently or not every time, mm -hmm. but consistently enough that they felt like to have been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, you had to be diagnosed with conduct disorder. And, and Perdicuri is not the only person that disagrees with this, right? There are a few more articles out there that take a different approach that perhaps there are some people that have uh, a genetic predisposition. There's a couple of articles that speak about this, that maybe there's a predisposition for a form of antisocial personality disorder that might start as something like oppositional defiant disorder, which may become, depending on maybe epigenetic factors, conduct disorder, which may become, perhaps depending on epigenetic factors, uh, environmental uh, factors might be the same as epigenetic, right, um, might become antisocial personality disorder. Now, a couple of other things that they talked about in this article that I think are worth mentioning is that it is very difficult to recall the events that might justify the retroactive diagnosis of conduct disorder. And they also mentioned that there seems to be a gender bias in the, in the number of criteria re required to diagnose antisocial personality disorder. In other words, men might be... Uh, more often labeled as being antisocial 
than women, even though the characteristics and the personality might have a lot of overlap. And I thought that was fascinating. And, yeah. and as we think about um, having medicine that is more accurately tuned into the various conditions and people and personalities that we may meet, you know, being aware of that would be helpful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the 1952 DSM-1. It starts off by telling us that uh, diagnosing antisocial personality disorder as an antisocial reaction under sociopathic personality disorder. We read an article that talked about how the DSM-5 should have been. Yeah. And I think in that same vein, they made the case that the DSM-5 should probably not require conduct disorder to be an antecedent to antisocial personality disorder. Right. Even though there are some subtle differences. I think uh, the Perdicori article made the case that antisocial personality disorder was more likely to have multiple personality disorders as opposed to um, what they called antisocial, a, a, they called it ASS, and I, I didn't really like the the choice of that. I think <laughs> I think they should have called it AAS or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so so clearly some argument about what the diagnosis should be and how meaningfully different uh, the diagnosis should be between having and not having contact disorder. I thought of it as what should the size of the pie be, um, whether it should be more accurately anybody that is demonstrating the personality characteristics should have antisocial personality disorder or not. The, I think the counterpoint to that, and it took me a while to figure this out, is that if we have a more strict criteria, then we can better understand the cause, maybe look at the biological antecedents to the problem and have biological treatments. And uh, you and I ran across a couple of articles that were uh, a little argumentative about treatments for antisocial personality disorder. How about taking me to uh, 2001 England? Is that when that uh, that came out? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, so uh, in these articles, it talked about how there isn't really a specific treatment for antisocial personality disorder. Uh, they've there's been a lot of murkiness in what they think is effective versus what's not effective. There's not one specific treatment that they say is better than the rest. Uh, if you keep looking into these articles, you find that the one thing that most of them agree on is that if you work on the patient earlier in their life, uh, that they're usually less aggressive as they go on. Because a lot of what these articles talk about is the aggressiveness mm -hmm. of these patients, not specifically getting rid of the antisocial personality disorder, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'll just go, go back briefly. So uh, Dr. Martin Locke uh, wrote, uh, actually I believe Dr. Anthony Maiden, M-A-D-E-N, wrote, or Mader, wrote the initial um, editorial of 100 words and essentially made the case that uh, we need to figure out better treatments for our patients with antisocial personality disorder. And he's somebody that runs the manager, he was the manager of what is called the DSPD unit in England at Broadmoor Hospital. And DSPD stands for Dangerous and Severe Personality Disordered. 
And uh, the response to that was by a Dr. Martin Locke, who does assessments for the population, and there's obviously a lot of legal overlap with this population. And uh, he made the argument that there is not treatment for antisocial personality disorder. And he, he referenced an article that had been done a number of years before where somebody had looked at patients, uh, had looked at an incarcerated population, tried to determine uh, recidivism rates based on their attentiveness in individual therapy. And those um, uh, people that were incarcerated who were the best participants actually ended up having the highest recidivism rate. But I don't, I'm not sure that that's the end of the story. I think there's a lot more to that story, right? I think we've often heard in psychiatry since that time that as we work with patients with antisocial personality disorder, all we're doing is making our patients better sociopaths. And I don't think that was the conclusion of the study. I think the conclusion of the study was that people that appear to be doing well in therapy might not be doing well in therapy, um, or the people that are given a certain type of therapy may not have a good outcome. And I think that differs from the specific targeted therapies that I think you're talking about. There are a number of articles that are now looking at uh, substance relapse, right? That there seems to be a very strong correlation between substance misuse and relapse following incarceration and recidivism. And if perhaps you can change substance misuse in a targeted therapy, not necessarily at having antisocial personality disorder, then maybe you can change the outcomes of recidivism. I think there are other articles and other uh, professors who are looking at this somewhat differently. I think Peter Fonagy had a, an article looking at mentalization. And my, again, another article that I wasn't able to look up, but my take on it is that probably if you can teach empathy, which seems to be a core feature that's missing in antisocial personality disorder, perhaps you can change the outcome of antisocial personality disorder. But again, data is thin. So I want to, unless you have a comment on that, I want to change gears and talk about um, a comment you made. You said, hey, you know, it looks like mostly we're looking now at treatments that are uh, intervening at a much earlier time. And there was a, uh, a very good article. Uh, I think it's the Delise article, 2019. Right? And uh, this talked about the etiology of antisocial personality disorder. So if we set aside that there's some heritability factor of between 40 and 70%, depending on who you read, and again, uh, hard to find all of these articles. We didn't have a, we didn't look those down and up, and perhaps that will be another visit. But once you subtract out the heritability, um, there's still a lot of risk factors that seem to exist for development of antisocial personality disorder. Talk to me about the Delise article, if that's one that you and I both read. I think it is. Uh, so I believe this is the article that kind of talks about uh, that if you look and they had a past history of a lot of physical or sexual abuse, then they're more likely to develop this over time. Uh, and then also, this one I think talked about, even though it's in the diagnosis that conduct disorder does have a large prevalence into leading to antisocial personality disorder. It may have been that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they started to run together. Right. So I'm thinking about the article, and, and again, I, I might have put this one in the group that we looked at after you had gone through most okay. of your research on it. So this is a, an, a, a study done by the Prison Bureau, if I understand correctly, the United States Prison Bureau. They looked at 863 
uh, formerly incarcerated people, uh, roughly 80% uh, white, roughly 80% male, approximately 44 years or on average 44 years old. They had been incarcerated about a third of the time for uh, charges associated with methamphetamines distribution uh, 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 to a much lesser percent uh, possession of a firearm when they when this person shouldn't have been and then even slightly less uh, bank fraud money laundering and a few things along those li lines ID theft and then in uh, about six percent of the cases child pornography and one of the things they talked about was how all of the risk factors that we've mentioned uh, poverty, childhood poverty, uh, limited parenting, those kinds of things might have been factors in development of, of antisocial personality disorder. And what they came to after looking at regression analysis, uh, looking at a number of factors with what I thought was a reasonable way of, an, uh, of assessing the number of factors they were looking at. In other words, were they trying to avoid the p appearance of p-hacking? What they found was that ACEs, right? Something that hasn't been talked about before in the literature. So we read a lot of literature ranging from about 1995 through about 2012, 2013. It seemed like that was where most of our articles came from. They talked about these risk factors for uh, developing antisocial personality disorder, both the uh, conduct disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and the antisocial uh, traits kind of thing that was non-conduct disorder preceded. And they said, hey, if you start thinking about this in terms of ACEs, then this maybe even makes more sense, right? Child abuse. Um, I think what they said was, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this was the same article, but they, they had it listed with how ADHD, alcohol, school expulsion, these factors didn't rank the same way as the, as the ACEs. Do you, do you have a, a description of ACEs? Uh, so, ACEs is any adverse childhood experience. So this, I don't have a specific definition, but it would be anything along the lines of abuse or any uh, sexual, physical, verbal, anything along those lines kinds of abuse or anything in their childhood that you would consider a bad experience. Yeah, the, so ACEs, Adverse Childhood Events, right, and they can be recorded and there, uh, there's a, a, a number of those that can fall into that. I'm not sure that poverty falls into that, um, but clearly the, the abuse, so the neglect and abuse. And I think it's interesting because I, I think that these ACEs and the antecedents and the story that we've developed to this point, let me, let me try telling the story again. We've told a story to this point that there may not that there may be a couple of different pathways to adult antisocial personality disorder behaviors, not the diagnosis, but behaviors, and that among those pathways there seem to be a number of factors that commonly show up, whether that's, again, poverty or some of the ACEs or childhood neglect, which I'm not sure if that's an ACE or not. I think one of the next podcasts we're going to have to do is on ACEs. Um, these factors keep showing up. 
And if these factors keep showing up, even if there's a heritable factor, how can we intervene to change the problem? We've made the case that psychotherapies to this point don't seem to dramatically change the nature of the human being, right? So empathy still seems to be absent. We might be able to reduce the risk of a couple of other things or some of the problems associated with antisocial personality disorder, but we're not fixing it at the time that, at least at this point, right? I think there are a couple of therapies that uh, are being tested. There are a couple of articles that have been published, but there's not a lot of data on those yet. So maybe something will come. But at the moment, the best data we have is for intervening in these early childhood, um, at early childhood stages. So let's talk about some of the articles that you read about early childhood intervention. Yeah, so there was one article that I found really useful in kind of talking about this subject in particular, uh, the Bohr article. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one talked a lot about child and youth mental health services and what kind of interventions that you can have in the child and youth mental health services. And one in particular that they talked about as being very beneficial uh, was this PATHS program uh, that is usually in adolescence and it uh, stands for Promoting Alternative Thinking Strategies. And this is a program in which they teach these children to understand their emotions, to learn self-control, and to learn social problem solving in a lot of different areas. Also in this article, they talked about multi-systemic therapy, uh, that they, uh, that really delve into those children's what kind of causes them to be aggressive is kind of the idea behind that therapy. The function of the behavior might be the way the psychologists talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was kind of the other way that they went into uh, helping these children and because it's been shown in other ones that everyone believes that starting it earlier will help them later on in their adult lives to not be as aggressive or have as dysfunctioning antisocial personality disorder. There was one other intervention that I thought was very impressive, and that was the prenatal, perinatal up to age two. And apparently this is the work by uh, Dr. Olds maybe, or by David Olds. And uh, I also looked for this article and couldn't, I actually I didn't have time to look for this one. This is data that's been going on for about 25 years now. And it was very interesting. They had four levels of interventions. The first was uh, identify uh, families that were at risk, essentially make sure that they had, I think the second level of intervention was to make sure they had travel to their prenatal appointments. And then through a fourth level of intervention, which was ultimately you have uh, periodic visits that are not infrequent, up through age, up to the second birthday, I think, of the children. And they found some uh, modest reductions in sociopathy at the 20-year mark. So this is stuff that's been going on about 20, 25 years. And just having involvement. And again, the the, the second intervention that he mentioned was preschool age. So the path starts in the primary years, multi-systemic starts showing up in adolescent years. And again, this preschool targeting, they have uh, data it looks like now 20 years out. And again, they're showing uh, roughly 10 to 15% reduction in, in the antisocial personality kinds of markers 
of, of uh, aggression and so forth, and incarceration, those kinds of things. And, and even though we don't think of a 10% reduction as being very significant, um, there was one number that really popped out at me in the Bohr article, and that was a reference to a study that had been put together by the Washington State um, Organization on Public Policy, something along those lines. And they said that multisystemic um, therapy seems to save, uh, it seems to have a $30,000 to $130,000 benefit per dollar spent. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, <great>. what? <laughs> it's, it's crazy, yeah. right? So, so the, the return on investment in some of these intervention programs was negative, right? Uh, according to the Washington uh, Public Policy article, but this multi-systemic intervention looks very, very good. And the data from, and, and they, again, this article made the case that even a 10% reduction in crime starts to have uh, larger benefits when you talk about the difference between the cost on the individual who is the victim of the crime, the cost of society and the judicial costs, and all of those costs start to add up very quickly. So I, I was very impressed with even a, a 10 to 15% reduction in antisocial personality behavior. It, it was interesting to me that one of the articles that we looked at, which was, uh, um, I think I want to, uh, the article, boy, this is great podcast, uh, <laughs> compelling, right? I can't seem to even Goodbye. see the paper I'm looking at, but there were so many articles that looked at uh, the differences in kinds of, of children. There was one, uh, you know, for, in terms of gee whiz, there was one neuropsych article that looked at seven-year-olds and then followed up. Uh, with different tests at age 17 and afterwards. And they make the case that um, verbal and spatial intelligence and verbal and spatial memory are mm. impaired. Another article made the case that there were problems with, uh, I want to say, right frontal uh, brain areas. Uh, and that because children, and I didn't know this, uh, right hemisphere dominance, ages one to three, and then it switches. Do you guys know that? Mm-mm. No. I, I, I'm, I don't know. I, wow. It says that. So, <laughs> so apparently, um, these issues that may be right hemisphere dominance, uh, visual and spatial um, memory and learning, might impair a child's ability to connect with mom, right? Have reciprocal interactions that develop uh, important bonding issues. So, so these these approaches that were talked about by Bohr might help with some of the epigenetic factors. Um, In fact, largely, if you think about the themes, they're about parent management and child social competence. So teaching parents how to parent in in a way that's more effective than maybe they learned how to parent or would uh, innately know, and then teaching children how to socialize more effectively than they would either have been taught or innately know, right? And those seem to be the ways that most of the intervent- uh, interventive therapies are now looking at trying to address this problem, this this very big problem. I mean, it's not a small problem. I, I don't know right. if you, I think Bohr said that it accounted for 2% of the GDP in Australia, uh, child and adolescent uh, aggression, violence, and property uh, damage, cost of the courts, and so forth. And that's a huge percentage. Right? Right. That's a very, very uh, large amount. What have I not asked you about that we should have talked about up to this point, Connor? Uh, I think that we hit pretty much everything on antisocial personality disorder that we wanted to talk about. I guess the one other thing I will just say is that uh, there are 
articles out there that talk about trying to use medications for it, but none of them have been effective. I don't know if we ever actually said that specifically. It's a, it's a great point. I don't know that you'll see questions on treatment uh, for antisocial personality disorder specifically, either medications nor psychotherapies at this point. Uh, I think mostly the focus will be on the distinction between uh, antisocial personality disorder and conduct disorder, which in many cases is an age issue, right? Um, and I think the other thing that will come up is just being able to recognize those conditions. I think typically you'll have one or maybe two questions on antisocial personality disorder on the shelf exam and not a lot more. And uh, probably knowing the age of onset and maybe recognizing the differences between uh, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, and antisocial personality disorder would probably be the high yield on that. Any thoughts about that from the three of you? I think that sounds about right. Another thing is that, like, I saw a question about having the symptoms of antisocial personality disorder, like lack of remorse and crime and stuff, kind of has to be in every facet of their life. That was kind of emphasized in case files. It can't just be, like, one little part of their life. It has to be pretty much their entire personality. And I think that's uh, consistent with the language of all the personality disorders is the pervasive uh, nature of the personality. And again, I think it speaks sort of to that question uh, or the comment that we made earlier. One of the uh, concerns that, is it Rain had? No, it's somebody else now. Um, we had so many authors. Uh, <laughs> one of the concerns that one of the authors had was that this personality disorder focuses most more on behaviors rather than way of thinking, right? And, and I think probably the best way to conceptualize that is if the behaviors seem to have a pattern of a lack of empathy, then you're probably most likely on, on the right path for one of these disorders. And I'll just mention that empathy, according to one author, is the natural capacity to share, understand, and respond with care to the affective states of others. So if you have a, an attending who comes in and you are bawling and you look like your glasses are broken and your hair is matted and your shirt is torn and says, why are you late? <laughs> that, that may be a lack of empathy, just to kind of throw that out there as an example. Maybe. All right, so we've just barely re -re reviewed the uh, high yield stuff that we think may be important in tests, uh, principles that would be uh, important for your examinations. I think we had an interesting discussion about the idea that at the moment treatment for antisocial personality is limited and that perhaps the way we slice the pie, whether it should or shouldn't be something that's viewed as a longitudinal condition versus a condition that may or may not show up at different ages, I think it creates an interesting discussion and something that uh, I'll be watching a little more clearly in the future. This is a very, very big topic. I was surprised at how big it became so quickly. And uh, the gee whiz on this for me related to the idea that, hey, maybe reciprocal interactions in childhood play a role in this, right? I, I never crossed my mind. And of course, I'm going to ask other medical students if that's really true, if uh, we are right hemisphere dominant for the first few years of our life, right? <laughs> we'll be looking it up later. Uh, let's see, uh, Jonathan, anything that stood out to you in the conversation today? Um, not so much in the conversation um, that we were having other than just early intervention is the most important part. Seems, seems like it so far based on what we know, and even though the curtain interventions are modest in effect size, or, or modest in NNTs, so to speak, it seems to be valuable in the long run. Yeah. 
Julia? Um, yeah, I think that that is also something that stuck out to me. When I was doing studying for this, it was kind of interesting because it does say in one of my study books that SSRIs and mood stabilizers have shown promise. The only thing that it says doesn't work, it, like for sure, is psychodynamic psychotherapy. So it was interesting to hear more about the science behind it not working, any of this. So yeah, I think we're a long ways away from, I, I, hopefully nobody actually asks you if SSRIs work because I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure how promising that is. I think <laughs> we looked at a Cochrane article, I think, and Cochrane article was pretty um, uh, dismal, I think is a yes. good way of saying that. <laughs> Connor. Yeah, I think the thing that stuck out to me was just how much debate there is of how this should be diagnosed, especially that conduct disorder. I thought it was the most fascinating thing when I was looking it up and the disagreement and the arguments for both sides. Yeah, a, a fascinating argument to me. I tried to understand it from both sides to see if I could get a better sense of why people wanted to have it different ways. I mean, I, I'm not sure that it just goes back to the Robbins article being, well, we, we started this way, we're stuck with it. I, I think there's also some geneticists that are trying to look at these links, uh, these these uh, links that maybe have less to do with the environmental factors and more to do with the genetic factors. But again, <laughs> difficult conversation for me. And, and a lot out there, a lot out there, and a lot of... I, I think my last note on this would be that there's probably very few other diagnoses that have the same kind of significant effect on both the individual who has the condition and society as a whole, right? These are very costly both uh, personally and, and societally. Uh, on that note, thank you very much. Uh, very good inaugural podcast, guys. Thanks for joining us. And Connor, well done. I look forward to seeing what you do next. Any, any hints? Uh, not yet. It will be family medicine. That's the one thing going for me. So, <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, then, thanks, guys, and team out. You guys are supposed to say team out. Oh, team, team out. out. <laughs> <laughs>